you know, the markets we're buying in are robust markets. Mm. The population is stable and growing, mm -hmm. and the values are stable and growing. It's not like we're just buying residential anywhere. Mm -hmm. We're buying in good markets. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1174-1174. Thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, for most of this show, we're going to have a segment, an investigative report from an Uber driver. Yes, that's coming up here in a moment. But it's not an investigative report about Uber. It's about another company. I've got two of my favorite people with me, and that is Carmen and Carrie. And uh, Carmen will talk a little bit about our upcoming trip. And Carrie, we got to talk about the economy and a few other things, right? Yeah, well, look, we've seen interest rates were headed up for a while and they were gung-ho. They were going to be four more in 2019. Four more rate hikes, four, you meant. Yeah, four yeah. more rate hikes. That was a little too aggressive, I'd yeah. say. Well, the whole intention was to supposedly to normalize interest rates so that you could go back to the bank and open up a 5% passbook account. Unfortunately, a funny thing happened on the way to normalization, and that is the new normal. And basically, employment numbers have been weak. Economic numbers, performance numbers, growth numbers around the globe have been weak. The U.S. has been the only bright spot, literally. And now with those employment numbers heading down, and then there was the fear of the stock market going down, which it did the end of last year, that has caused the Fed to reassess and say, all right, happy days are here again. We're not cutting rates yet, but uh, for the time being, no more rate hikes. And now the employment numbers were a little stronger last month, but not overly strong, not outrageous. It looks like we could be coming to the peak for employment numbers. How much of the rate hikes that they were doing, and thankfully they've cooled off on this, how much of that do you think is based on the Fed's need to reload the gun, so to speak, to be ready for the next recession? Because if rates are too low, then the Fed has no ammunition to battle the next recession, the next cycle, right? It needs those rates to be higher so it can make them lower, which is kind of an odd yeah. sort of thinking to a lot of people. Listen, Carrie, you and I both, well, I think you'll agree with me here that I don't like this centrally planned economy. I don't like central banks very much. I think that the market should just set the rates and everything should be kind of libertarian, but that's mm -hmm. not what we have. So who cares? How much of that do you think is the reload mentality, the reload concern? Yeah, well, I think that's real because if interest rates are close to zero, the only thing you can do then is buy bonds, you know, QE4, which they don't want to do that. That set the stock market going up, set all of the asset bubbles 
that we have now between the market, trophy real estate in Manhattan, et cetera. They don't want to do that if they can avoid it. Plus, we've got inflows coming into the U.S. from other countries who are worried about their own banking systems and in, currencies. Inflows of capital, because yes. the U.S. is always the safe space. It's Correct. the brinks truck of the world, and capital comes here because capital goes where it's treated best. And it's not always treated best here from a taxation perspective, but from a political perspective, in terms of the fear of seizure of your capital, the U.S. is a pretty safe place. Yeah. And also in terms of if you're a foreign national, you get treated a lot better in the U.S. than as a American citizen taxation-wise. The U.S. is really the world's largest tax haven everyone except Americans. Yeah. By the way, that's a really, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've, I've talked about that before, but I, especially on my holistic survival and jet setter shows where we talk about survivalism on holistic survival as the name would imply. But on the jet setter show where I interview guests that talk about, you know, lifestyle friendly destinations worldwide and a lot of expat interviews and things like that. So it's been interesting to learn from them. Most people don't think of the U.S. as a tax haven. They think of Caribbean islands. They think of Jersey. They think of, and that's not New Jersey, that's Jersey, part of the British Empire. You know, the Cook Islands, uh, the Cayman Islands, obviously, which, by the way, we have a cruise coming up to the Cayman Islands oh. in November. Join us, jasonhartman.com slash cruise. Shameless self-promoter. But the U.S. is a tax haven. Like, a lot of people don't yeah. realize that. For right? everyone but us. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For us, it sucks. But it's and, good in other ways. Yeah, and then the other thing of, inflows is there's a trillion dollars a year that nobody talks about in dollar denominated debt that was loaned out dollars that were loaned out to uh, companies and countries that were playing the dollar short saying well borrow from the u.s long term and pay it back in cheaper dollars what they didn't anticipate was the dollar was going to appreciate rapidly against their local currencies so this is driving the world like nuts it's an economic disaster but the fact is an economic disaster for whom? Well, eventually for us, but right now for the countries that have to pay back that dollar-denominated debt. Because, like I talk about inflation-induced debt destruction, their debt has actually become more valuable, I guess I'll or say. Burdensome. In, in the, well, I was about to say that, but I want to say more valuable first because the dollar's more valuable. So that's the opposite of inflation-induced debt destruction. So the debt has become, as Kerry said, more burdensome. Now, what's interesting about this is in the real estate world, and that's what we're about here mostly because we think income property is the most historically proven asset class in the world. In the real estate world, a lot of foreign nationals bought American real estate. Of course, this has been happening forever, but what's interesting about it is they not only can play the real estate game like we do, but they also play the arbitrage between the currencies. Now, sometimes that works for them. Sometimes it works against them. So uh, that's just something to think about. We saw a lot of Australian investors do this in years past. Oh, after the crash, they were buying up our foreclosures right. by the boatload. And I thought they were like, total suckers. But then what happened? They were like bringing in planes full of Australians to Arizona yeah. and they bought up tens of thousands of foreclosures that have quadrupled and quintupled in price. Yeah. So even though I thought it was a bad deal for them at the time, it turned out to be a phenomenal deal. Yeah. Plus they were investing overseas 
So there were all of these uh, Australian taxes that they were legally able to avoid, and it turned out to be a great deal for them. Shows what, even though you think real estate is down, it's never really out. That's true because it's multi-dimensional, so you get to play the multi-dimensional stuff. But one of the other beautiful things about it is that, you know, we had Meredith Whitney on a few years back. We need to get her back. She wrote that book, State of the States. I highly recommend it. Her predictions turned out to be uh, very right in that capital always goes where it's treated best. And when you think of it from an international perspective— Capital is treated pretty darn good in the U.S., like Carrie said, you know, especially for non-Americans, but even for Americans, of course, too. That makes the U.S. very much open for business and a very attractive place for foreign investors. Any tie-ins for the real estate investors that we oh, want to yeah. mention, Carrie? Yeah. yeah, well, for sure, because when you uh, look at what's happening uh, here, so, you know, when rates go up, that's obviously not great for uh, real estate it actually will bring prices down over time in any market. It's going to happen. So, but taking, it, it, it'll bring prices down, but rents up. Okay. Rents because up those and, are counter cyclical. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, effectively, your monthly carrying costs aren't really going to change significantly over time because prices will come down. So you're paying higher rates. So it equalizes. But here, you know, this is an example where rates are coming down. Prices really are not raising, they're not going up at this point. So effectively, you're getting a better return on your investment. Rents are still going up because there's still a record number of renters in the country. And interest rates coming down, so your return is going up. And you're not doing anything. You're just buying, and you're seeing your, your return go up yeah. dramatically. Yeah, very interesting stuff. What we have now is what I call the tale of two markets. Of course, it's really three because, you know, we look at the world in terms of linear, cyclical, and hybrid markets. But the tale of two markets, to coin the famous tale of two cities phrase, to ride on those coattails, is basically about the linear markets versus the cyclical markets. Cyclical markets, all the high-priced markets, the you know New York cities, the South Florida, the Los Angeles, the West Coast, you know that kind of stuff. Those markets are suffering, you know, in terms of price softness and uh, expanding inventory dramatically. But the opposite is in the linear markets, the markets we like, those inexpensive kind of bread and butter markets. Where prices are strong, I wouldn't say they're going through the roof. Inventory is very constrained. It's not as bad as it was last year. So inventory is loosened a little bit. There's a little more selection now. But again, it's not nearly as good as it was three years ago or before that. There was a lot more inventory then. Oh, sure. So, yeah, these factors all interplay interestingly. But, you know, as we talked a lot about the international perspective on some of this stuff, a couple things. Uh, Carmen and I leave for South Korea and then China. This is going to be an interesting trip. You know, I've been to 81 countries so far. Never mainland China, never South Korea. So I'm going to hit number 82 and 83 on this All trip. Right. Exciting. Passports getting uh, major, the pages are getting used up there. That's the Stamped. idea. That's the idea. And you know, I got to tell you, Carmen, you were helping me get my Chinese visa. That was a pain. That was a hassle. Really? I, yeah. I found it so easy. You ah. took a picture, you sent them your passport, you sent them 250 bucks, 
And it came back in two oh, weeks stamped. The application had a zillion questions. It was, I thought it was a pain, but whatever. You know, that's an idea of putting up a Berlin wall around your country. Like, why would you mm -hmm. want to do that? I, it's like, I want to bring my money into your country and spend it and tourism is expensive. Why don't you just let people in? It's it's silly. You know, it's, it's, it's what they do. Carmen, you go to China every year for the Canton Fair because you are an e-commerce seller. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm surprised there's still a country you haven't been to. So it's interesting. We're going to two of them. I haven't been to Venezuela, <laughs> your homeland. Well, you won't be going there anytime soon. Or Brazil. So, yeah. yeah. I'm um, not going to go to Venezuela. I hear I should have a holiday there. Tell us about China. Everything. I mean, China is just, oh, it's going to be a very interesting place to visit. I've been there three times. I go there for business, mostly to source products. I meet with my vendors and... You just have to realize that the way they do things are maybe the way things were done in the past. So using the visa example, you know, it's a very long application where, you know, they ask you even what's your mother and father's name and, you know, all kinds of information that is so irrelevant. But they've probably been doing it that way for long and, you know, they're stuck with it. Even being in the country, just, you know, booking hotels and flights, it's just so much more complicated than in here because... I don't know. They just do things a different way. And uh, yeah, it's easier for them to sell to Amazon than it is for the average Chinese citizen to buy from Amazon. Forget it. They won't even attempt it. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know about that. But what about, you know, the economy, these ghost cities, Carmen, I can't wait to see a lot of this stuff. I mean, when my mom uh, did a China tour, and she did it with an investment group, not a real estate investment group, but a stock market investment group, maybe I want to say that was about 16 years ago, I'm thinking, she said, Jason, it's amazing when you go there, you know, you come in on the plane, landing in these Chinese cities. And it's like looking out of the window at seven New York cities. It's mm -hmm. so big. These cities are massive. And there are so many massive cities. The population is oh. just huge. I mean, they're not just big, but there's just people and construction just everywhere. I remember one of the well, trips. You know what she said, Carmen? She said the national bird of China should be the crane because yeah. there's just construction everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I remember one of the trips I took a train going from, I think, Guangzhou to Hong Kong. And I was looking forward to that trip, thinking that I was going to see the countryside. Well, guess what? The countryside is more buildings and more population. And it yeah. just, it just, oh, there's no houses, you know, there's no mm. land. I mean, there's land, but it's just from one town, town to the other. So it's unbelievable. I mean, the biggest cities in the world are there. Shanghai oh, yeah. is, is... Shanghai is 64 million people in the metro area. You wow. can't even picture oh, it. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, yeah, the crowding and, yeah, I've been there twice I was there once 20 years ago. I wouldn't eat anything there. Going back two years ago, you could pretty much identify where the food came from. It didn't taste much better, though. But the growth that took place during that time. So literally, the first time I flew into Hong Kong was the old airport. And it was right in the middle. Of, you flew between skyscrapers. Oh, I, I did that one. Under clotheslines. Yeah, well, that is scary. And you yeah. could look into people's houses, the apartment buildings, and, you know, like they were eating dinner. You yeah. saw this with it such detail. Nuts. I saw that too. I did that. Frightening, uh, frightening airport. It had one runway. How it ever functioned was a mystery to me. But somehow they got it running. It functioned with skilled pilots. <laughs> and, and the air traffic controllers. Yeah. Oh, man. It was like all the planes would come in in 15 minutes and they'd all leave in 15 minutes. And it was a, quite an experience. But now it's so different. I don't want to say it's sophisticated, but it's certainly more modern. And 
it's just surprising uh, what's going on there. Well, Carrie, to that point, I think what um, you will notice there is that it's a, it's a place of extreme contrast. So you will see the highest luxury you've ever seen anywhere in hotels and restaurants and anything you can imagine, they probably have it at, you know, twice or 10 times as more as we have here. But then you will see also, I don't know if it's poverty, but they're used to living in conditions that you would never even imagine. I was watching a show the other day about Hong Kong, and actually they were referring to this guy that rents a closet. His living space yeah. is the size of a closet, and he pays $150 or pounds, I think, equivalent for renting that space. All the space, all it can, he can fit there is a bed. So it's, it's just yeah. unbelievable. Well, they rent cage space. If you ever saw that Seinfeld where Kramer uh, is renting out drawers and oh, a dresser I remember that. Yeah, to, uh, to the, Asians. To the, I think they were Japanese. I think they were Chinese, yeah. Uh, Japanese, but Japanese yeah, or Koreans. Yeah. That's <laughs> almost what it's like there. You got these cages and they're like three to six cages high. It's frightening. That is really wild, the way they stack people in, basically. Okay, so I want to switch gears and come back to what we were talking about with China and this economic growth that we've seen around the world in the past couple of decades, truly amazing what globalization's done. And I want to take that back to Jeremy Siegel, who I've cited that article many times about the looming asset shortage. I think it's amazing, and I think it bodes really well for real estate investors. But before we do that, let's just switch gears quickly to our Amazon tour last week, because we didn't get a chance to talk about this on the podcast yet. I want to play the Uber driver clip. I interviewed our Uber driver. So Carmen, last week when we were in Phoenix, you set up a tour of an Amazon fulfillment center for us. And I thought that was really cool. I mean, going in there was like going in a whole city in and of itself, but under a roof. It it was mind-boggling. A digital sweatshop. Yeah. It was very interesting. I mean, having been in, you know, selling on Amazon for seven years now, I've I've known how their operations work. I've seen the videos, but it's never the same as just being there. And I don't think this was one of the most modern fulfillment centers because they didn't really have robots or anything like that. I didn't see that. But probably the number one thing I have to point out is just the size of this place. I mean, massive. it's just giant. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. How can they just have, and that's just one of them. Um, I, I don't know if you remember, they were talking about how they, named their fulfillment centers, and this was number six. Phoenix six, yeah. Yeah. HX six. They use the airport code and then add a number. And this was number six just in that area, and they have them everywhere. Yeah, they're all over, for sure. So Amazon, I have criticized them a lot, and I think rightfully so. I think they deserve the criticism. Here we've got basically one of the richest companies on planet Earth, and certainly the richest man on planet Earth, even post-divorce, they say he will still be the richest man, and uh, his wife, soon ex-wife, Mackenzie, will be the richest woman. So it's ridiculous to me that they have the conditions they do for their workers and uh, finally increase the wages to $15 an hour for the factory workers. But (laughs) that wasn't really true, as you'll hear from the Uber driver. So let's cut to the, you know, Carmen, it was amazing. We were picked up at the Amazon uh, Fulfillment Center after our tour. We took a tour. It was about an hour long. And then the Uber driver who picked us up, we got to talking with him and he said, oh, hey, I used to work there at that, <laughs> fu- at that fulfillment. I mean, what are the chances, yeah, right? what a coincidence. Yeah. And so I said, hey, can I interview you for my podcast? Well, here's the interview. 
So we just took a tour of an Amazon fulfillment center and it was truly amazing. Pardon the sound here. We're in the uh, ride sharing car. I don't even want to say which company <laughs> because the driver coincidentally happened to work at this center before. You know, we got in the car and said that we just took the tour and well, it's totally amazing. You know, Amazon has been criticized a lot about underpaying people, overworking them. Uh, you know, I hear that some Amazon workers going through the warehouse will walk up to 15 miles a day, wear motion trackers, and if they don't move fast enough, their supervisors get on their case, and ultimately, I'm sure, they don't keep their jobs if they're not. Basically, it's, 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 I mean, the comparisons have been made to a modern version of slavery, and I think there's some fairness in, in that comparison. But everybody's got a different opinion, of course. And uh, just wanted to uh, talk with our driver a little bit because he actually worked at, I think, a couple of the fulfillment centers over the years. And uh, this is Jose. How how you doing, Jose? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Names may have been changed to protect the innocent here. So tell us about it. How was it working there? It's an experience. It's work for sure. But um, I worked for as a picker when I first started, and within three to four months, I transferred departments. So I ended up doing stove. So, Jose, you started as a picker, meaning you pick the items and then put them into the packages to be shipped out. Is that what that means? Or no, as a picker, uh, you're basically an order filler. You're just, you're basically shopping. Okay. You have a cart, you know, you scan the item. Well, first of all, the gun will give you the location of where to go. The scan gun that they use. Yeah, right? there's a yeah, it's a scanner gun, a RF unit. The gun will give you a location to go. You go to the location, you scan the location, a barcode. The gun will show you the item that you're looking for. And you just basically put the item in your cart and just take off with it. And it'll just keep going. And you are walking over 10 miles a day. Yeah. There, there are numbers and rates to maintain. Yeah. yeah, so so the criticism has been about, you know, when people don't maintain those numbers and they don't move quickly enough and they don't fill enough items in the cart, you know, going shopping, as you say, which is a good metaphor for it, that their supervisors really come down on them, huh? Yeah, it's, it's all about numbers. You know, if you don't hit those numbers, then, you know, they kind of give you like a coaching and, and it, if it just goes on from there, it just gets escalated to... Uh, first ride up. Oh, first verbal, then first ride up, and so on. Yeah, yeah. our guide kind of sloughed that off because uh, someone did bring that up, and then I chimed in with saying, well, they have to wear motion trackers, right? And he was just kind of like, oh, everybody works at their own pace, blah, 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 <laughs> you know, which I thought was, uh, he, he really avoided the question. Yeah, the RF unit, which is the gun, will tell you where you're at, and it'll track the last time you scanned an item. It's not really a motion tracker. They just know where you're at. It just locates you. It doesn't show you every single motion that you're doing. It just locates you every time you scan an item. So finally, Bezos agreed to raise the minimum wage for warehouse workers to $15 an hour. It looks like you have something to say about yeah, that, Jose. I, I do. Uh, actually, it's not really a raise. All the workers feel like we should have been getting that from the get-go because these other warehouses in the area are paying way more. And Amazon's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry uh, company. And uh, they're giant, like one of the richest companies in the yeah, world. Fortune 500. The raise wasn't really a raise because they just took away some benefits that we had to compensate the pay raise. So at first, before any of this happened, we were um, getting stocks. As soon as you get hired onto the company, they give you stocks. And they also give you like a bonus called VCP, like the whole warehouse is on a, a rate 
And if we hit those production rates in all departments, then we get a bonus. Well, they got rid of all that. So, so, so basically, it wasn't really a raise. All they did is rework some stuff and move the benefits around so that it they could do a press release to say they gave a raise, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Uh, everybody was mad about it. What it did for the employees that were there long, it just really took away from them. And with these new employees that are barely getting hired on, they don't know anything about no VCP or any um, stocks, so it's all new to them. And they just saw it as a win because it starts the pay rate is starting off higher than what it used to be. Yeah, interesting, interesting. What else can you say about working there? I mean, obviously you left, but um, would you recommend that job? Is it better? You know, I mean, the comparison is always the question is compared to what, right? Amazon is a super rich company, and I think people are making that comparison of, you know, here we've got Jeff Bezos, even post-divorce, he's still going to be the richest man in the world, it looks like. You know, so they're making the comparison with the success of the company versus what the workers are getting paid, saying, you know, share the wealth, which is a, a reasonable argument for sure. But the other comparison one could make is, what would all those people working for Amazon have been doing before? Or if Amazon didn't exist, what job would they be doing? Would they be working at another kind of warehouse? Uh, would that be better or worse? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Jose? I really don't have anything to say on that. Uh, I probably would be doing um, some type of uh, collections or just a different environment. I wouldn't be in a warehouse, but... Yeah, yeah. So, and, and you're doing ride-sharing now. Is there anything else uh, you want to share with uh, people about uh, the Amazon working experience? I mean, you got to admit, like, it's still a pretty amazing operation, isn't it? It is. Um, there's so many different departments and different functions of the company. So you're just, if you're in one department, you're only, you're only seeing that one side. But once you get to a different department, you just see the whole process of how everything's done, like from the product coming into the building and how it leaves the building. It, it goes through many different levels from the ordering to it being picked, to it going down all these different conveyors, there's conveyors going throughout that whole building, and it's, that building's three stories, so there's millions of items in it. And everywhere you go in the warehouse, you're going to find something new. You kind of get oohed and awed as you're in the warehouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Our guide said that they have 15 miles of conveyor belts at that facility, and that it's the size of 28 football fields. It's just, the scale is mind-boggling. It's, it's like a city inside that building, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's it's a maze. You can get lost in there, and uh, you're definitely walking miles in there. So it does put a lot of wear and tear on you with those uh, concrete slabs that you're walking on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can understand that. Hey, thanks for uh, being on the show and sharing uh, some uh, some insider information with us. We appreciate it. Yeah. No problem. Anytime. So anyway, I hope you liked that uh, little investigative on-the-street, man-on-the-street interview in the Uber car. Carmen, you know what amazed me at that Amazon Fulfillment Center? What a PR machine that that tour really is, right? Yeah, I mean, it was especially interesting because we heard all the wonderful benefits that they offer and what a great thing is to work there while we're in the tour. And then we... I've read the articles to the contrary. Right. And then we go on this Uber ride and we hear the exact opposite. And, you know, all these true things that nobody told us during the tour. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like a trip to the Soviet Union and uh, in... the workers' paradise right. and everybody's happy and content and everybody's thrilled. But the reality 
to Potemkin Village, yeah. and the reality is something wholly different. Yeah, that you do not see, you know, the, uh, the yeah, it's a total PR machine. But, hey, what can you expect? Of course, they're going to be doing PR all the time. And they talk about all the good they're doing for the community and they, this and that. And listen, I don't hate them. I, I think they do incredible things, too. So it's a, you know, it's like everything. It's a love-hate thing. But when you're that big and you're impacting this many people, you deserve to be looked at and criticized, okay? I mean, it's And you just, should stay out of politics yeah, as totally. well. It's a bad thing. And stay out of the Washington Post. Yeah, like, <laughs> stay away. And their biggest profit center is their CIA cloud business. So there's a lot of things to not like about Amazon. You know, they or made Google, 11 or billion. Or Google, or Facebook, or all the rest, yeah. And they made $11 billion and paid no taxes. So I see AOC's point you don't want to be subsidizing wealthy corporations for no reason. But on the other hand, if New York didn't do it, somebody else would do it as well. So that story's been told. So Yeah, good point. Okay, so back to China here for a moment. The amazing thing about the riches of China and India and all these other countries that have just done incredible things over the last couple of decades the amazing thing is this, I want to go back to this article that I used to talk about in my Creating Wealth seminars years and years ago, where Jeremy Siegel, financial guru Jeremy Siegel, talked about uh, the looming asset shortage. He says, look, we've uh, globalization has lifted at the time, now it's even more, 275 million people out of poverty. Carmen, you talked about these cities in China where, you know, these people used to be dirt poor rural farmers and now they're moving into the middle class. This is not just happening in China. It's happening in many places around the world. And as bad as things are in so many ways, the question is always compared to what? I mean, look at a lot of these people were dirt poor. And okay, maybe there will be another economic cycle. Maybe things aren't so great overall in looking at the perfect world and a utopian idea, but they're better than they used to be okay so here's the thing the question is like jeremy siegel said where will all the assets be for these people around the world these hundreds of millions of people moving into the middle class and then there's this talk about the rising billion you know people that live on a couple of bucks a day that are becoming more and more prosperous. Guess what? They all need resources. They all need a place to live, the three basic human needs, food, clothing, and shelter. And look at listeners, you own the shelter. And you don't just own the shelter. You own the commodities that make the shelter, the concrete, the lumber, the glass, the steel, the copper wire, the petroleum products. All of those resources are the ingredients of every house or apartment you own, okay? And you're playing the commodities game. You're essentially a packaged commodities investor, as I call it. As resources become more and more in demand, Look at, remember, we're looking at the big macro picture here. We're not looking at little trends. What's the price of copper today or oil today or yesterday? Who cares? Nobody lives like that except a trader. We look at big macro trends. And the big macro trend is a rising middle class around the world, more prosperity, and more demand for scarce assets. So get as many of those assets as you can That's what we're all about in this show and at jasonhartman.com, helping you do that. Any final thoughts? Just that uh, half the world's copper is consumed by China. 
and copper is an essential metal. Everything that we have, automobiles, iPhones, computers, anything electronic, copper. But the amount of copper that goes into a house, it's hundreds of pounds of copper. So you always say, Jason, you're playing the commodity markets when you buy a home, when you buy a building, because it's got all of these assets, these commodities built into it. Copper is a big one, and they're just not finding new major sources of it. So that's a, just an area where your theory holds totally true. And think about it, folks. You're sitting on all of that copper, lumber, concrete, petroleum products, glass, steel, the ingredients of your house, right? You're sitting on that with probably only 20% in the deal, 80% financed by a bank, debt mm-hmm. outsourced to a tenant. You're not even paying your own debts. The tenant is probably giving you 150 bucks extra per month. That's called positive cash flow. The government's giving you tax benefits. You're being subsidized in so many ways, and it's such a great deal. So income property is the most historically proven asset class in the world. Go to jasonartman.com properties or just look around the website at everything. Join us for an upcoming event, and we will talk to you tomorrow. And until then, happy investing. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional, and we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.